Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes, a 40-year Wall Street veteran that's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide you with a handful of stock ideas here on the show each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news, but our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air. So we've disguised our voices and they'll never know. This week, it's September 23rd, 2020. Uh, We've got three pretty medium stock ideas this week and a little bit of discussion about, you know, news and the economy and stuff. But before we get to that, some important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Secondly, uh, Mo and I are professional money managers and analysts during the week. We do a lot of careful research around forecasting, talking to management teams, understanding the competitive advantages of the firms we purchase. Here we've done absolutely none of that. Third, uh, we do not have your interests in mind. We just have our own greedy interests in mind, uh, my lawyer says to tell you. And fourth, and I won't speak for Mo since he's not here, still training, but um, I've been heavily drinking. See all our caveats, disclosures, pictures our moms took at www.thevalueguys.com. Okay, well, thanks for listening in, everybody. I'm a couple days late with the show because Mo is still uh, off training and uh, is, uh, you know, not even on the grid. Can't even reach Mo. So, you know, I, uh, I'm going to do the show. We have people who need ideas. And that's what I do. You know, uh, we got a couple of ideas. Uh, Mo um, doesn't have any Wall Street news this week. So I've gone ahead and got my own Wall Street news, um, which isn't as good as Mo's. But let's see what we got here. Well, first, the market continues to be a little bit... I'd say in a in a sluggish period here after the fastest increase off the low that we've seen in history uh we've now in September here been a little sluggish you know earnings estimates are coming out the lockdowns are continuing a little longer than people thought uh and so I think that's having a little impact here taking a little if you will breather I continue to believe that the market is uh, not that expensive. Remember, you got to look at the 10-year bond, which has got a, I think, a maybe a 0.006 yield now, which equates to, you know, 170 PE. So when the S&P is at 30, it doesn't seem that high. And of course, we don't tend to pay that much. I would say that when you look at what happens in uh, in plagues and pandemics and things in the past. I've done a little homework. You know, a lot of times some real interesting innovation comes out of that. So I honestly believe that um, people who aren't spending a bunch of time on trains, planes, and buses, and, uh, you know, railroad stations and such are probably inventing some interesting stuff. So I continue to have a pretty positive outlook here because I think just people left alone with computers basically uh, access to all the knowledge of the world for very little cost, access to anyone you want to collaborate with in real time around the world for free. I mean, these are sort of, you know, elements to innovation, if you will call it um, idea turnover, the time it takes ideas to to, to pass around and be incrementally uh, improved has gone down to no time. And I think that's... um, 
that's going to bode well for the economy ahead. So what's my Wall Street news? Let's see. Well, two things. Again, I don't want to waste a lot of everybody's time. <clears throat> One thing I saw was, again, what's happening in this brave new world? Well, trends that have been going on for a long time are just continuing in terms of the move to uh, online shopping, the move to uh, streaming. I mean, basically all the productivity gains that come from the Internet are still being explored as speeds get faster. It allows more things such as streaming, Zoom calls, uh, you know, when you can eliminate the need for airplanes in business, you know, that's a very big deal. You know, we're, we're going to be seeing the benefits of that productivity enhancement roll through for a long time. And as I've said in the past, as you think about what's coming from all this, you've just lurched a, uh, the largest group of people in history into the future, a generation ahead of when they usually want to be lurched in. You know, my grandma never used a push-button phone, you know. And so now everyone's lurched into the future. I think we're going to see a lot of time saved, a lot of increased productivity. And where's that time going to go? I mean, clearly some of it's going to go to drinking. I mean, uh, if anyone has any sense. But a lot of it's going to go to other stuff. Probably goofing off is going to be a big category. But I think also innovation invention, creativity, these sorts of things that humans do without even necessarily wanting to. You know, some people just uh, think of stuff when they're sitting around, and there's going to be a lot more of that going on during this period. So one piece of news was simply that as those trends continue, gaming, leisure. We've talked a lot about games over the years. Again, if you Google up value guys and EA or GLU, U or... Uh, Activision, you know, we've talked about these over the years. And I'm just happy to say that I noticed the other day that Microsoft paid $7 billion for Bethesda software. Um, according to Metacritic, which is the place you can go to see how all the games are doing, this has been the biggest platform for some time. They've got a bunch of very big brands Doom, Elder Scrolls, Fallout, things like this. Some people estimate their revenues are as much as a billion dollars, you know, it's kind of secretive. But that's seven times revenue. It's in the zone of what uh, Disney paid for Pixar a while back. So the idea that you're getting a bunch of great content um, and it's worth a lot, particularly if it's growing, then, um, you know, that might be some new benchmark of value for software. And so, you know, why would I mention it? because I think it's a chance to go back and look at all your uh, software offerings, particularly in this gaming area, and they might be worth a little more than you thought, given this deal. So, you know, EA is one, and then, uh, you know, Take-Two is, is another, and those are studios. Um, these guys also have distribution, so, um, you know, it's... Um, it's not a perfect match, but I think it's it's certainly worth looking at. And then the other piece of news I had, and you know, doing very little work here, again, without Mo here, you know, he usually has a few interesting nuggets. But what I pulled up in the in the spirit of education is these days, you know, a lot of uh, being a um, professional investor is really going to meetings, meeting management, hearing what their plans are, hearing the questions from other investors that you didn't think of, and seeing management grilled, 
you know, um, years ago, I used to go out to management offices. You'd go into the office, they'd serve you tea on fine china. You know, they're trying to influence you, particularly when I was publishing. They want to influence you. And I just took notes, and I noticed that I almost never came back from a company visit feeling worse about the company. Like, they're professional influencers. They have psychologists and lawyers and everybody, I'm sure, just, you know, getting them prepared for visits from sell-side publishing analysts. And so you're going to be manipulated, even if you don't want to be. It's just human nature. So the place I prefer to see management is not on their home court, but on our home court. So where's that? Well, it's at an investment conference where they're surrounded by angry investors yelling questions at them and putting the heat on them. Because sometimes then you, truth starts to pop out. And, um, and I think uh, uh, then you also have a sense of what information is in the marketplace. Part of doing this job well is understanding what you know that the marketplace may not know quite yet. Um, and when you sit around and see a management team grilled, then you kind of see all the questions pop up. That's why, again, another worthwhile thing to do is go and, uh, you know, look at Seeking Alpha, look at the, you know, quarterly call transcripts, look at the questions that Wall Street analysts ask. It's a wonderful classroom for figuring out, you know, what are the key questions almost with, with any stock. So in the spirit of education, I just want to point out um, I subscribe to something called briefing.com, and it's, uh, it's kind of a substitute for institutional salespeople calling you up, telling you what's going on. And, uh, you know, a lot of Wall Street news pops up in here. The thing I'd want to mention is all these brokerage firms, you know, it used to be that they would get you to come to their conference. You'd all mix it up in their home court. And, uh, you know, again, as I was just saying, it's a wonderful place to deliver some Q&A to management teams. But we're not doing that anymore. Everything is Zoom. So guess what? There's no capacity limit. Uh, there's no cost involved. They're not serving you lunch. And so what's happening is all these brokerage firms are putting up their conferences on Zoom. And so what I would say is... If you have a favorite brokerage firm, like, for example, the thing I was going to mention today is that D.A. Davidson, you know, a nice brokerage firm, I think they're headquartered in, uh, actually in Idaho, something like that. They had their conference, virtual conference. So there's probably 50 companies. You can go listen. Now, the trick is you have to, if you're not a client, you got to wiggle your way in. But with the cost being zero, I mean... It's easy to get uh, an invitation these days because, again, it doesn't cost them anything to deliver it. And if you can position yourself as an intern somewhere or, you know, you're the accountant for the firm or if you call a management team and say, hey, I see you're going to be on the uh, D.A. Davidson, just call the investor relations office and they can get you hooked into these things. And so from your desk, you know, you're you're hearing uh, CEOs and CFOs talk about their companies. And it's the fastest way to learn what the heck's going on. Um, most of these things you can then listen later on the company websites. They'll post 
their um, recordings, you know, a little bit after the, the event. So if you don't need to see it live, uh, you can go back later and, uh, and listen in a few days later, what have you. So there you have it, Wall Street News. That's kind of, kind of weak news this week. I mean, there's a lot of news, but again, you can, you can click on that. That's not why you tune in. And then in terms of thinking about names from the past, you know, we like to have a little, a little history corner from names we've talked about in the past. But you know what? I'm not going to do that today. I don't, uh, I'm kind of sleepy. I guess we did just sort of talk about a past name. We've been recommending this gaming area for literally a decade. And um, I think by Microsoft coming in, not that we thought it wasn't uh, a certain area to invest in, but um, I think that their their investment kind of underscores that it's apt to be uh, a growth area for some time. So... And I don't have anything else going on there. I guess the other thing I could do just right now um, is walking through national economic trends. We've got listeners that want to, you know, dial in and see what we're doing with the economy and things like that. And longtime listeners have heard me talk about, again, this, this newsletter I got my whole career called National Economic Trends. And it disappeared for a while. But I'm happy to say that uh, the Federal Reserve has brought it back. So if you go to Google and type in Federal Reserve of St. Louis, I'm doing it here with you, Federal Reserve St. Louis, National Economic Trends, they have made this thing virtual. So um, it's a wonderful way to quickly see what the hell is going on with the economy. And uh, so I'm just pulling up. Output and growth. I recommend everybody go do this. It tells you what's going on with GDP and interest rates and inventories. Obviously, there's a lot of lines going straight down. And we've talked about this on on past shows. But the the thing I want to mention today, and I go in here literally every day to see what's happening, is that um, something has just risen beyond what it was even years ago, which is hours worked per week. So average weekly hours of production employees in private industry for years and years, even this is going back to 2016, the peak was 34 hours. And that was, uh, well, I shouldn't even say that it was 33.8. Okay. And now in uh, July of 2020, after dipping down during March by just a little bit toward 33, we now are at 34. Now, those seem like small moves, but over a five, six-year period, the low is 33.4. That was in March. The high is 34.1. That was in June, and now we're at 34.0, which is higher than any time in the last five years. So I think that bodes pretty well for the economy. These are weekly numbers, so I think we're getting a view of this a little more quickly than we're getting from, uh, from some of these other more 
quarterly numbers like GDP and things like that, or even inventories and, and such. Um, because in employment, we just, we just tend to have a little bit better data. So that's one thing I want to mention. And then the other thing, and again, this is nothing that uh, is earth-shattering here, but again, if you're just interested in what the heck's going on with the economy, you know, you may have a, an event tonight and you want to have something to talk about that's not politics, you know, economics, it's always available as a topic. It's like, hey, how's that 10-year bond doing? Huh, very interesting, Smithers, you know, that type of thing. So I'd say, you know, it's not Netflix, but uh, the St. Louis Federal Reserve is trying its best. And one of the series they have that I really like is called Leading Indicators. And I think my favorite thing about it is that it's trying to predict the future, which, you know, is hard. So the fact that they're even trying it, I think it's always been fascinating to me. And so I tend to look at this. Now, I will say it's usually wrong. You know, it predicts recessions that don't happen. This time it did not predict a recession that did happen. So again, not necessarily something you could take to the bank, but I will say that I'm looking at it right now. It's in Fred, Leading Index for the United States. There's another series called Leading Indicators. And the Leading Index is just basically putting together all the leading indicators for all the states and, uh, and modeling that against their uh, their coincident indicators versus their trailing indicators, which somehow pops into a leading indicator. And what I would say is this series predicted pretty well the 91 recession. Okay. The 01, it really nailed that one. It got it, well, well in advance. Uh, now, that was a recession we didn't know we were in uh, at the time, and then when we thought we were in it, it was already over. So, you know, when they announce these things is a whole nother matter. But in 07, again, predicted it. This thing went down pretty fast in the early 08. And if you got out then, you know, that was in time. And it simply didn't predict this one at all. So, so far, the only data that I have in here, I don't know why this is lagging the most frequent the most recent piece of data we have on this one is um let's see here is is february of 2020 and in february of 2020 this leading indicator number leading index was moving higher from a low back in the fall of 18 and just powering through 19 and into January of 2020, still looking good. So to the extent that um, that weekly wage, the weekly uh, hours numbers moving up, you know, the GDP number has not yet had a chance to turn higher. But some of these, um, you know, the fact that the leading indicators were pointing up prior to COVID and all the weekly hours numbers are pointing up, housing starts are rising, leisure activity. So I would say um, while we have taken a little respite here in the reopening of the economy, I feel that a lot of stuff is getting back to business. 
and spending has just shifted. So you can't go to a restaurant. What are you doing instead? You're doing something else. You know, the savings rate went up a lot. There's a lot of dry powder, people figuring out what they're going to do. And that's why I think it's a very exciting time for stocks. So, okay, well, that was uh, only medium in terms of what we just talked about. Wall Street News, a little bit of the economy. My stock market summary is pretty weak, which is September was meh. And I think the big indexes have pulled back. You know, the S&P is still slightly positive, but most of the other big indices have turned negative by a little bit. And I anticipate that when we see the third and fourth quarter numbers, it's going to confirm that uh, we're back on track to get to um, new highs in GDP. And, uh, and we're just going to see the next couple of quarters, or we're going to need to see the next couple of quarters to get comfortable about that. So anyway, uh, let's see, what's the time here? I think that's probably like half the show, all right? So I'm going to take a break right now. And, uh, and when we come back, we're going to get to the meat of the show, which is three really medium ideas that actually this week came off of a consistent growth dividend screen. I'm almost not sure what else to do. It's, uh, it's a very interesting time. So we'll be back right after this. Okay, everybody, we're back. I hope that was a good break for you. It's silly, right? I don't know why. It's, uh, I watched a lot of Jeopardy as a kid. That's all that I can, it's the only way I can explain. Okay, what do we have this week for the meat of the show? Well, I ran a screen, and again, I, when you look at the new low list right now, it's not a pretty sight. I wouldn't be getting into that. In good times, that's a good place to look because the littlest disappointment can send a stock to its low. But right now, if you're on your low, something's really, really not well. So that's not the one I want. What we really want is management teams that know how to navigate a period of uncertainty and can figure it out, how to keep the ship on course, right? Okay, so how do we know which ones? Well, A, we don't, so don't even worry about that. But one clue is companies that pay consistent dividends, you know, and consistently growing dividends, you know that they are always thinking about their ability to pay the dividend. So sometimes they might have to make decisions that quite honestly might not be in the long-term interest of the company versus the short-term interest where they know they have to pay the dividend. And some of these firms, not these large ones, but I run into smaller dividend-paying firms where you know, the reason they increase the dividend is because the owner of the company calls them up and says, hey, you guys need to increase the dividend. I own 52%, that kind of thing. But when you have a big public company, I think 
there are different reasons to pay the dividend. You know, it's not necessarily a tax-optimized strategy, but there are people and institutions that prefer consistent income. Retirees need income. Um, you know, even pension funds that uh, have a lot of retirees need income. And so I think there's a place for, there's certainly a place for dividend stocks. And from a stock picker's point of view, at least you know you have a group of companies where management is maybe a little more focused on their ability to pay the dividend. And during an uncertain time, I feel that, um, you know, having them a little more focused on their cash flows and what's just ahead and dividends are paid every quarter, that it's a very good discipline. So that's why I did it. I actually tried, I started with the new low list and it's just dregs. I can't even, this is not the time to do a dregs of the Dow. I think I did a dogs of the Dow recently and dogs of the Dow are a lot better than dregs of the market because, you know, there's what, 30 Dow stocks, and they're all pretty big and pretty well capitalized. So in any case, here's my screen. It's, uh, it's big companies that have been consistently paying a dividend, and the way we did that is basically we said that their, um, their five-year dividend per share growth had to be 5% or more. Their five-year EPS growth had to be 5% or more. Their PE had to be, you know, less than 25. And uh, their free cash flow had to pay the dividend more than two and a half times. So, um, and we just kept scrunching that down until we got a decent list. We also excluded financials because you'd get a bunch of those. So we got a list of 25 names. And you can go and do this as well. A bunch of them I've talked about in the past. So it's a decent little screen. And again, what I've said in the past, the nice thing about a screen is, you know, you've got some criteria that have gotten through here. So all these companies, you know, are very, very good companies, very well capitalized. They all have a dividend, obviously, and they've been growing it consistently for many years. So, you know, there's a few names in here we've talked about in the past. One being, uh, I think Lockheed Martin is one that we've talked about, and that comes through here, and there's a few other ones as well. But the uh, the couple, and I, I could talk about a lot of these. What else? 3M is in here we've talked about. MSM, MSC Industrial Direct, I think I did just a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's a few other defense guys, General Dynamics, and a lot of money management, you know, some of these money management firms have negative enterprise value, which means they have giant net positive cash. And, uh, you know, it almost suggests they're predicting the demise of the uh, active management uh, or wealth advisory business. I mean, I don't know. I don't believe that's going to happen. So let's see, 22 names. And I have a, a comp screen. I, you know, basically I'm looking for good returns on investment, good returns on assets, good balance sheets. And when you go through this dividend paying screen, you know, there's not a lot of stuff that's super cheap because it's high quality, good balance sheets paying dividends, but you can still find a few eddies of value. So let me 
Let me just dig in. I did pick three. I won't subject you to me kind of wandering through here as I have in past shows because I already looked through here. I saved you a little bit of time. So there's three names that came through, and I'll just cut to the chase. The first one, Packaging Corp of America, PKG. The second one, which I'd never heard of, so I love that, Cohen and Steers, CNS. It is a money management firm. And then the last one is Hubble, and they're basically a big electric company, uh, electric grid and, and other stuff that, that helps with the flow of electricity to retail and uh, institutional customers. So let me start with Cone and Steers, CNS. Cone and Steers is uh, market cap of $2.6 billion. They're a niche asset manager. They concentrate on real estate, and they invest in the equity shares of REITs. So it's almost like a fund of funds, a fund of real estate funds. They do a few other things. They do some utility stocks, and they do some, some high yield. The history of the company is, um, you know, goes back a long way. I honestly don't know much about these guys. But they've been consistently growing their revenue. I've got 10 years of revenue here. They were $180 million in 2010. They were $400 million in 2019. So that's pretty good. You know, the operating income here grows every year over that period very consistently. So I like that. In terms of the margins, you know, they uh, their pre-tax margin has uh, been growing. You know, 10 years ago, it was 35%. Now it's 45%. So it's pretty nice. Their EBITDA margin was 31% 10 years ago, 42% now. You know, REITs are one of those investments that 10 or 15 years ago was not necessarily accepted as uh, as an asset class for pension funds. But now it is. And so, you know, sometimes stocks are just supply and demand based. So when you have all the pension funds saying, you know what, we should have an 8% allocation to REITs. Oh my God, that increases the value of REITs. And you've heard me talk about the valuation metrics on REITs. Real estate is a, is a market that's valued on cap rates. So when you talk about a value, it's a, it's a cap rate. The rents divided by the value, 5%, 3%, 8%. And so as interest rates go down, that should, and if rates stay stable, I mean, obviously rent is the other element. In a bond, the coupon doesn't change, but in a, in a building, the rent can change. So you've got these other components moving around. But generally, when rates, interest rates go down and the rents are stable, the value of those properties should go up. So it's been a pretty good period for REITs. And, uh, of course, the stock market itself is uh, at all-time highs, and REITs are at all-time highs in terms of market share of pension funds, and, and they're valued on a cap rate basis. So there's a lot of reasons why REITs could be viewed as expensive here. But the reason I like this one, and I own some REITs, I've talked about that, it's just the stability of it. And, you know, depending on the type of properties your REITs own, 
which I have to admit on this one, I don't know. It's a big company. They've got billions of dollars under management. Let's see if, it, if I can tell you how much they have under management. They have $66 billion under management, and their revenue is $414 million. So you can do the math. They're getting about a whatever that is. Like if you're smart, you can do the math. Let's see. That's about a 65, 70-bit basis point fee, which is very healthy. And according to this, they've got 40% of their business from institutional clients, 43% from open-end funds, and uh, 13% of their revenue, but 20% of their profits from closed-end funds, which is great because closed-end funds can't fire you. A lot of them are 10-year funds. It was a time when some of those were perpetual, which means... You know, when the earth blows up, there'll be checks in the mail to those firms. I don't know if any of these funds are perpetual. They probably are not. But there's a famous perpetual closed-end fund put out by Duff and Phelps, a utility fund years ago, closed-end. It's been amazing. So if any of these are perpetual or even longer term, that's a nice element to it. Uh, they've got absolutely no debt. So I like that a lot. You know, when I go and look at the valuation... Again, these things aren't cheap these days. It's 22 times earnings, but it was 24 times earnings in 2015. It was 23 times earnings in 2011. So it doesn't particularly look that expensive. And relative to some other firms, you know, it's not necessarily looking that expensive. You know, enterprise value to EBITDA right now, 15 times. So I like to look at the inverse of that. Uh, which is about, you know, what, six and a half, six and three quarters percent cash on cash return. And the real estate uh, REIT business is going to grow with the value of REITs. And I think generally, um, I feel it's safe to say that's going to grow sort of at a GDP type of level in terms of valuation or overall value of REITs. So, you know, what can I tell you? Conan Steers, one listener wrote in and said that, you know, we're just giving new ideas and, you know, we're not uh, digging in. Well, the, the thing is, is that's exactly right. Um, this is the sort of work we would do to then hand it off to somebody to go do an, a model. Uh, by the time I'm talking about it, it has piqued our interest. This one has a 51% return on invested capital. So... You could go buy it right now. I mean, you almost wouldn't have to know a lot else. A company that can generate a 51% return on invested capital is probably pretty good, you know. And because they send out all their cash flow, pretty much I think REITs have to send out 90% of their cash flow, then the return on invested capital is going to stay good because you, you don't keep adding capital that then dilutes your returns on capital. Revenues have taken a little bit of a dip here, obviously, with COVID, but um, since 2009, they've been rising very steadily. So I think that, um, you know, management undoubtedly is uh, in a, I guess, is some type of acquisition-related effort here over time. The enterprise value to EBITDA, again, one of my key valuation metrics is, is toward the high end of where it likes to be. You know, you could have bought this at, at nine times last year, but it's been a bit higher. It was in the 20s, you know, uh, 10 years ago. It was 20, 
even just um, earlier this year. And then, um, you know, I guess you got to go back a ways. But rates have never been this low. So I think part of the higher multiple is related to rates. I think there's a fair amount of safety here just from real estate and also the lack of debt. You know, again, do your own homework. The stock's a little bit down today, but, you know, what have you. It's 54 bucks. Conan Steers, CNS. Okay. Next up, Packaging Corp of America, PKG. This came through my screen because, uh, again, very consistent dividend payer. And I think that... Um, you know, one of the thesis around this is that in a world where you go direct, obviously the manufacture of boxes is going to be an important growth area as grandma just realized she doesn't have to go to the store anymore. So, you know, these guys were the fourth largest container board and corrugated packaging manufacturer in the country. And according to this, their market share is about 10%. So, you know, their competitors are much, much larger. So they're going to get one-offs. They're going to get, uh, you know, smaller customers. And, um, you know, this is an industry that does get volatile because of a couple of things moving around. Commodity prices for paper move around. And, you know, sometimes it's not related to the demand for paper because, it might depend on how many logs are needed or how much wood is needed. So there are some moving parts here that make it a little confusing. The other is how many new plants are they building? So when someone puts up a new factory, prices come down, et cetera. A lot of moving parts. I actually was a paper analyst um, publishing, you know, many, many years ago. And it's confusing and you can study it and get it wrong. So there's a little bit of, you got to step back on these. What's the big picture? The big picture here is that packaging is in the ascension. When you go to the store, stuff has less packaging than when they send it to you in FedEx. And, you know, again, this isn't rocket science. We've known this for a very long time. But the confidence that um, growth and market share for online is going to continue is very high at this point for me anyway because you've just lurched an entire generation into the notion that they don't have to go to the store and that's a positive because they save a bunch of time and so I, I feel pretty good about that. These guys, one of the reasons I chose them is they just have such a consistent history of returns. Return on assets, 7%. It's been as high as 12. It kind of goes between 12 and 7, 12 and 7 every few years. I have a feeling that there's a cycle there of when new capacity comes on, when they ask for price hikes and when they get price declines. But in general, it's sort of consistently between kind of 7 and 12. And it's at the lower end of that right now, which gives me some confidence that there's been some excess capacity that they're going to be working through, particularly if demand is so high. You know, return on capital, same pattern. You know, capital is not as big a number as assets. So here, the return on capital has been running between 8 and 18 on the high end. Most recently, in the high was in December 18 at 15, but it got as high as 19 back in 2013. Debt to EBITDA, very manageable here at, at two times. I like that a lot. Uh, the profit margin is low, but, you know, the turnover is high. 
And so I think that, that uh, when you have a commodity like this, you, you do have to keep low profit margins in part to keep out competitors, part of the competitive advantage. Coverage of interest, eight times, so I don't have any problem with that. And they generate cash from operations consistently every quarter, um, which is nice. I don't see a lot of big money losing periods in here. Cash flow, you know, even after financing, the cash, ending cash, just goes up almost every year. And that's very unusual. Um, Now, they could be buying some stock back, I suppose, with that cash, but they're not. But I, I like that a lot. And I will say that during this period, you know, with the demand for housing just running ahead and with uh, a lot of forest land is under pressure, not only from fires in the U.S., but in Canada, they've got some disease that's really eroding the, uh, uh, the capacity of the forests. And so we may run into a period here where paper prices um, and cardboard prices, corrugated prices, are in the ascension just because it's a residual product. I think that the demand for wood could use up a lot of a potential uh, source of, of corrugated and could help pricing here. Um, in terms of the valuation, you know, this one historically has been high single digits. Right now it's nine times. Again, the inverse 11% cash on cash return. And it's been higher. It was 12 in 2013. It was, uh, let's see, 10 in 2017. But on average, it's not particularly uh, super cheap here. I just think compared to interest rates it is and compared to what we're seeing in terms of the demand for wood on the other side and the likely shortages, in my opinion, we're going to have over the next couple of years. Couple other data points here. You know, the Altman Z score I like as a predictor of bankruptcy. It's three and a half in very good shape. Uh, net debt here is modest, and uh, profit margins for uh, a commodity producer are pretty good. So I mentioned that the pre tax profit margins at 3%, 3.6, but uh, the operating margin is 13. And uh, the EBITDA margin is 18. So, I mean, what that tells you is your cash return on sales is 18. There's a lot of depreciation and amortization in there. You know, these big plants that they make are not cheap. And so um, I think that's a pretty healthy number for a, uh, a commodity producer, a corrugated. So, you know, I don't have a lot else. It's a, an idea to go take a look at. Packaging Corp of America very high quality, could benefit from some price. Um, And uh, at the least, you're going to get a dividend, which is uh, right now 3%. So that's Packaging Corp of America. And then uh, last up is really probably my favorite here. It's called Hubble, H-U-B-B. I've known this company for a long time, known of it. And... One of the cool things about it is that they are um, an industrial uh, company that focuses entirely 
on the electrical component markets. And what I like about that is electricity is the one thing that if we don't have it, we're in the Stone Age. Like clearly, we can get along without airplanes and uh, trains and other things. But electricity, I don't think so. So these guys are involved in um, basically trying to optimize the grid, the smart grid, you know, understanding your electricity flows and the distribution of power, uh, moving things from, you know, one area to another. The U.S. electric grid is evidently, um, you know, it's not glue and string exactly, but um, some of these professionals envision a much smarter grid where you could move power around. The grid would tell you where, you know, where the brakes are so you could send crews to fix things more quickly and, uh, and those kinds of things. And I'm not a a physicist, so I don't even barely know how electricity even works other than um, electrons are moving around and uh, pushing, um, making magnets spin, um, which then, you know, you got to get some ideas around what to do with a spinning wheel. But, you know, again, that's where uh, engineers come in. You know, we don't use a lot of those in, uh, in the investment business that I'm aware of. Again, that's why I don't do that. But I think, um, you know, these guys have had a business that gives them something on every electric pole, every, every production facility is, uh, is chock full of Hubble equipment. Their returns are, you know, again, in this 8% area on, on assets, a bit higher, you know, in the low teens on capital debt to EBITDA, so two, their debt to capital is a little higher, but their earnings are, their margins are high enough that that's not really an issue. Enterprise value to revenue is two, very reasonable. What else do we have? Enterprise value to EBITDA, 12 times. So that's an 8% cash on cash return. The balance sheet is um, in pretty good shape here. Enterprise value 8.6 billion, market cap 7.1, so net cash is 1.5 on an 8.6 enterprise value. That's pretty good. Um, let's see. The recent sales have been, um, you know, it's an industrial, and so we've had a few periods here that have been under a little pressure, but we're. Uh, you know, in their case, they've been remarkably stable. So their March number, a billion one versus a billion one last year. Their June number, 949 million versus 1.2 million last year. So they were down, you know, about 20% on that. And my guess is that that's just uh, a, a lot of people not installing new stuff. You know, everybody had to stay home and their equipment is purchased to, you know, go out into the field. And I'm going to guess there was a little bit of a disruption in that. In terms of historical valuation, again, none of these things are cheap. Everyone understands the grid needs some updating, but enterprise value to EBITDA 12 times. And it's pretty much right in line with where it tends to trade historically. And so, uh, you know, I think this is a reasonable entry point in terms of key stats, which I already talked about, you know, their returns here are pretty decent. 
you know, it's a big industrial. Returns are good. It's cheap. If you believe that the next couple of years are going to be, you know, on the upswing, that's what we were predicting in the leading indicators. That's what some of the job growth is predicting. Interest rates certainly allow people to, um, you know, take on some capital and get going. So I'm very optimistic about next year. And I think Hubble as a base industrial helping the grid at a reasonable valuation, good balance sheet is one you should go do a little homework on, H-U-B-B. So there you have it. That's our show. And uh, I hope you got a few ideas out of there. And if not, you know, try a different show. We got a lot of ideas. I was a little sleepy this week, so um, I apologize. But hopefully there's a few nuggets in there for you to, uh, to do a little more digging on. So that's it. Thanks a lot for listening in. Appreciate you spending another hour with us this week. Hopefully Mo will be back next week. See all our shows on iTunes. Um, we have a lot on Spotify as well or the website www.thevalueguys.com. So long, everybody.